Chapter Eleven of Pele the Conqueror, Volume One by Martin Anderson Nexo, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A safe stronghold, our God is still a trusty shield and weapon. He'll help us clear from all the ill that hath us now o'ertaken. The ancient prince of hell hath risen with purpose fell. Strong male of craft and power he weareth in this hour. On earth is not his fellow. The whole school sat swaying backward and forward in time to the rhythm, grinding out hymns in endless succession. Fries, the master, was walking up and down the middle passage, smoking his pipe. He was taking exercise after an hour's reading of the paper. He was using the cane to beat time with, now and then letting it descend upon the back of an offender, but always only at the end of a line, as a kind of note of admiration. Fries could not bear to have the rhythm broken. The children who did not know the hymn were carried along by the crowd, some of them contenting themselves with moving their lips, while others made up words of their own. When the latter were too dreadful, their neighbors laughed, and then the cane descended. When one verse came to an end, Fries quickly started the next, for the mill was hard to set in motion again when once it had come to a standstill. With four, and the half-hundred children carried it on. With force of arms we nothing can, full soon we were downridden. Then Fries had another breathing space in which to enjoy his pipe and be lulled by this noise that spoke of great and industrious activity. When things went as they were now going, his exasperation calmed down for a time, and he could smile at his thoughts as he paced up and down, and, old though he was, look at the bright side of life. People in passing stopped to rejoice over the diligence displayed, and Fries beat more briskly with the cane and felt a long-forgotten ideal stirring within him. He had this whole flock of children to educate for life. He was engaged in creating the coming generation. When the hymn came to an end, he got them, without a pause, turned on to, who puts his trust in God alone, and from that again, too, we all, we all have faith in God. They had had them all three the whole winter through, and now at last, after tremendous labor, he had brought them so far that they could say them more or less together. The hymn-book was the business of Fries's life, and his forty years as parish clerk had led to his knowing the whole of it by heart. In addition to this, he had a natural gift. As a child, Fries had been intended for the ministry, and his studies as a young man were in accordance with that intention. Bible words came with effect from his lips, and his prospects were of the best, when an ill-natured bird came all the way from the Faroe Islands to bring trouble upon him. Fries fell down two flights from spiritual guide to parish clerk and child-whipper. The latter office he looked upon as almost too transparent a punishment from heaven, and arranged his school as a miniature clerical charge. The whole village bore traces of his work. There was not much knowledge of reading and writing, but when it was a question of hymns and Bible texts, 
these fishermen and little artisans were bad to beat. Fries took to himself the credit for the fairly good circumstances of the adults and the receipt of proper wages by the young men. He followed each one of them with something of a father's eyes and considered them all to be practically a success. And he was on friendly terms with them once they had left school. They would come to the old bachelor and have a chat and relieve their minds of some difficulty or other. But it was always another matter with the confounded brood that sat upon the school benches for the time being. It resisted learning with might and main, and Fries prophesied it no good in the future. Fries hated the children, but he loved these squarely built hymns, which seemed to wear out the whole class, while he himself could give them without relaxing a muscle. And when it went as it was doing today, he could quite forget that there were such things as children and give himself up to this endless procession in which column after column filed past him in the footfall of the rhythm. It was not hymns either. It was a mighty march past of all the strong things of life in which there stretched in one endless tone all that Fries himself had failed to attain. That was why he nodded so happily and why the loud tramp of feet rose around him like the acclamations of armies on Ave Caesar. He was sitting with the third supplement of his newspaper before him, but he was not reading. His eyes were closed, and his head moved gently to the rhythm. The children babbled on ceaselessly, almost without stopping for breath. They were hypnotized by the monotonous flow of words. They were like the geese that had been given leave by the fox to say a prayer before they were eaten, and now went on praying and praying forever and ever. When they came to the end of the three hymns, they began again by themselves. The mill kept getting louder. They kept the time with their feet, and it was like the stroke of a mighty piston, a boom. Fries nodded with them, and a long tuft of hair flapped in his face. He fell into an ecstasy and could not sit still upon his chair. And were this world all devil's oar and watching to devour us, we lay it not to heart so sore, not they can overpower us. It sounded like a stamping mill. Some were beating their slates upon the tables and others thumping with their elbows. Fries did not hear it. He heard only the mighty tramp of advancing hosts. And let the prince of ill look grim as e'er he will. Suddenly, at a preconcerted signal, the whole school stopped singing. Fries was brought to earth again with a shock. He opened his eyes and saw that he had once more allowed himself to be taken by surprise. You little devils! You confounded brats! he roared, diving into their midst with his cane. In a moment, the whole school was in a tumult, the boys fighting and the girls screaming. Fries began hitting about him. He tried to bring them back to the patter. "'Who puts his trust in God alone?' he shouted in a voice that drowned the clamor. But they did not take it up. The little devils! Then he hit indiscriminately. He knew quite well that one was just as good as another and was not particular where the strokes fell. 
He took the long-haired ones by the hair and dragged them to the table, and thrashed them until the cane began to split. The boys had been waiting for this. They had themselves rubbed onion into the cane that morning, and the most defiant of them had on several pairs of trousers for the occasion. When the cracked sound proclaimed that the cane was in process of disintegration, the whole school burst into deafening cheers. Fries had thrown up the game and let them go on. He walked up and down the middle passage like a suffering animal, his gall rising. "'You little devils!' he hissed. "'You infernal brats!' And then, "'Do sit still, children!' This last was so ridiculously touching in the midst of all the rest that it had to be imitated. Pelle sat farthest away, in the corner. He was fairly new at this sort of thing, but did his best. Suddenly he jumped on the table, and danced there in his stockinged feet. Fries gazed at him so strangely, Pelle thought. He was like Father Lasse when everything went wrong, and he slid down, ashamed. Nobody had noticed his action, however. It was far too ordinary. It was a deafening uproar, and now and then an ill-natured remark was hurled out of the seething tumult. Where they came from it was difficult to say, but every one of them hit Fries and made him cower. False steps made in his youth, on the other side of the water fifty years ago, were brought up again here on the lips of these ignorant children, as well as some of his best actions that had been so unselfish that the district had put the very worst interpretation upon them. And as if that were not enough, but hush, he was sobbing. Shh, shh! It was Henry Bodker, the biggest boy in the school, and he was standing on a bench and shushing threateningly. The girls adored him and became quiet directly, but some of the boys would not obey the order and when Henry held his clenched fist up to one eye, they too became quiet. Fries walked up and down the middle passage like a pardoned defender. He did not dare to raise his eyes, but they could all see that he was crying. "'It's a shame,' said a voice in an undertone. All eyes were turned upon him, and there was perfect silence in the room. "'Playtime!' cried a boy's voice in a tone of command. It was Nylon's. Fries nodded feebly, and they rushed out. Fries remained behind to collect himself. He walked up and down with his hands behind his back, swallowing hard. He was going to send in his resignation. Every time things went quite wrong, Fries sent in his resignation, and when he had come to himself a little, he put it off until the spring examinations were over. He would not leave in this way, as a kind of failure. This very winter he had worked as he had never done before, in order that his resignation might have somewhat the effect of a bomb, and that they might really feel it as a loss when he had gone. When the examination was held, he would take the hymn-book for repetition in chorus, right from the beginning. Some of the children would quickly drop behind but there were some of them into whom, in the course of time, he had hammered most of its contents. Long before they had run out, 
the clergyman would lift his hand to stop them and say, "'That's enough, my dear clerk, that's enough,' and would thank him in a voice of emotion. While the school committee and the parents would whisper together in awed admiration, and then would be the time to resign. The school lay on the outskirts of the fishing village, and the playground was the shore. When the boys were let out after a few hours' lessons, they were like young cattle out for the first time after the long winter. They darted like flitting swallows in all directions, threw themselves upon the fresh rampart of sea-rack, and beat one another about the ears with the salt-wet weeds. Pelle was not fond of this game. The sharp weed stung, and sometimes there were stones hanging to it, grown right in. But he dared not hold himself aloof, for that would attract attention at once. The thing was to join in it, and yet not be in it, to make himself little and big, according to the requirements of the moment, so as to be at one time unseen and at another to exert a terrifying effect. He had his work cut out in twisting and turning, and slipping in and out. The girls always kept together in one corner of the playground, told tittle-tattle, and ate their lunch, but the boys ran all over the place like swallows in aimless flight. A big boy was standing crouching close to the gymnastic apparatus, with his arm hiding his face and munching. They whirled about him excitedly, now one and now another making the circle narrower and narrower. Peter Kofod, howling Peter, looked as if the world were sailing under him. He clung to the climbing pole and hid his face. When they came close up to him, they kicked up behind with a roar, and the boy screamed with terror, turned up his face, and broke into a long-drawn howl. Afterward, he was given all the food that the others could not eat. Howling Peter was always eating and always howling. He was a pauper child and an orphan. He was big for his age, but he had a strangely blue and frozen look. His frightened eyes stood half out of his head, and beneath them the flesh was swollen and puffy with crying. He started at the least sound and there was always an expression of fear on his face. The boys never really did him any harm, but they screamed and crouched down whenever they passed him. They could not resist it. Then he would scream too, and cower with fear. The girls would sometimes run up and tap him on the back, and then he screamed in terror. Afterward all the children gave him some of their food. He ate it all, roared and was as famished as ever. No one could understand what was wrong with him. Twice he had made an attempt to hang himself, and nobody could give any reason for it, not even he himself, and yet he was not altogether stupid. Lasse believed that he was a visionary, and saw things that others could not see, so that the very fact of living and drawing breath frightened him. But however that might be, Pelle must on no account do anything to him, not for all the world. The crowd of boys had retired to the shore, and there, with little Nylon at their head, suddenly threw themselves upon Henry Bodker. He was knocked down and buried beneath the swarm. 
which lay in a sprawling heap upon the top of him, pounding down with clenched fists wherever there was an opening. But then a pair of fists began to push upward, chew, chew, like steam punches. The boys rolled off on all sides with their hands to their faces, and Henry Bodker emerged from the heap, kicking at random. Nylon was still hanging like a leech to the back of his neck, and Henry tore his blouse in getting him thrown off. To Pelle he seemed to be tremendously big as he stood there, only breathing a little quickly. And now the girls came up, and fastened his blouse together with pins, and gave him sweets. And he, by way of thanking them, seized them by the pigtails and tied them together, four or five of them, so that they could not get away from one another. They stood still and bore it patiently, only gazing at him with eyes of devotion. Pelle had ventured into the battle and had received a kick, but he bore no malice. If he had had a sweet, he, like the girls, would have given it to Henry Bodker, and would have put up with ungentle treatment, too. He worshipped him. But he measured himself by Nylon, the little bloodthirsty Nylon, who had no knowledge of fear, and attacked so recklessly that the others got out of his way. He was always in the thickest of the crowd, jumped right into the worst of everything, and came safely out of it all. Pelle examined himself critically to find points of resemblance, and found them, in his defense of Father Lasse the first summer, when he kicked a big boy, and in his relations with the mad bull, of which he was not in the least afraid. But in other points it failed. He was afraid of the dark, and he could not stand a thrashing, while Nylon would take his with his hands in his pockets. It was Pelle's first attempt at obtaining a general survey of himself. Fries had gone inland, probably to the church, so it would be a playtime for some hours. The boys began to look about for some more lasting ways of passing the time. The bulls went into the schoolroom and began to play about on the tables and benches, but the blinnies kept to the shore. Bulls and blinnies were the land and the sea in conflict. The division came naturally, on every more or less serious occasion, and sometimes gave rise to regular battles. Pelle kept with the shore boys. Henry Bodker and Nylon were among them, and they were something new. They did not care about the land and animals, but the sea, of which he was afraid, was like a cradle to them. They played about on the water, as they would in their mother's parlor, and had much of its easy movement. They were quicker than Pelle, but not so enduring, and they had a freer manner, and made less of the spot to which they belonged. They spoke of England in the most ordinary way, and brought things to school that their fathers and brothers had brought home with them from the other side of the world, from Africa and China. They spent nights on the sea on an open boat, and when they played truant it was always to go fishing. The cleverest of them had their own fishing tackle and little flat-bottomed prams that they had built themselves and caulked with oakum. They fished on their own account, and caught pike, eels, and tench, which they sold to the wealthier people in the district. Pelle thought he knew the stream thoroughly, 
but now he was brought to see it from a new side. Here were boys who in March and April, in the holidays, were up at three in the morning, waiting barefoot at the mouth of the stream to catch the pike and perch that went up into the fresh water to spawn. And nobody told the boys to do it. They did it because they liked it. They had strange pleasures. Now they were standing before the sea, in a long, jubilant row. They ran out with the receding wave to the larger stones out in the water, and then stood on the stones and jumped when the water came up again, like a flock of seabirds. The art consisted in keeping yourself dry-shod, and yet it was the quickest boys who got the wettest. There was, of course, a limit to the time you could keep yourself hovering. When wave followed wave in quick succession, you had to come down in the middle of it, and then sometimes it went over your head. Or an unusually large wave would come, and catch all the legs as they were drawn up in the middle of the jump, when the whole row turned beautifully and fell splash into the water. Then, with a deafening noise, they went up to the schoolroom to turn the bulls away from the stove. Farther along the shore there were generally some boys sitting with a hammer and a large nail, boring holes in the stones there. They were sons of stonemasons from beyond the quarries. Pelle's cousin Anton was among them. When the holes were deep enough, powder was pressed into them, and the whole school was present at the explosion. In the morning, when they were waiting for the master, the big boys would stand up by the school wall with their hands in their pockets, discussing the amount of canvas and the home port of vessels passing far out at sea. Pelle listened to them, open-mouthed. It was always the sea and what belonged to the sea that they talked about, and most of it he did not understand. All these boys wanted the same thing when they were confirmed, to go to sea. But Pelle himself had had enough of it when he crossed from Sweden. He could not understand them. How carefully he had always shut his eyes and put his fingers in his ears, so that his head should not get filled with water when he dived in the stream. But these boys swam down under the water like proper fish, and from what they said he understood that they could dive down in deep water and pick up stones from the bottom. "'Can you see down there, then?' he asked, in wonder. "'Yes, of course. How else would the fish be able to keep away from the nets? If it's only moonlight they keep far outside, the whole shoal. And the water doesn't run into your head when you take your fingers out of your ears?' "'Take your fingers out of your ears?' "'Yes, to pick up the stone.' A burst of scornful laughter greeted this remark, and they began to question him craftily. He was splendid, a regular country bumpkin. He had the funniest ideas about everything, and it very soon came out that he had never bathed in the sea. He was afraid of the water, a blue bag. The stream could not do away with that. After that, he was called Blue Bag, notwithstanding that he one day took the cattle whip to school with him and showed them how he could cut three-cornered holes in a pair of trousers with the long lash, hit a small stone so that it disappeared into the air, and make those loud reports. It was all excellent, but the name stuck to him all the same, 
and all his little personality smarted under it. In the course of the winter, some strong young men came home to the village in blue clothes and white neckcloths. They had laid up, as it was called, and some of them drew wages all through the winter without doing anything. They always came over to the school to see the master. They came in the middle of the lessons, but it did not matter. Fries was joy personified. They generally brought something or other for him, a cigar of such fine quality that it was enclosed in glass, or some other remarkable thing. And they talked to Fries as they would to a comrade, told him what they had gone through, so that the listening youngsters hugged themselves with delight, and quite unconcernedly smoked their clay pipes in the class, with the bowl turned nonchalantly downward without losing its tobacco. They had been engaged as cook's boys and ordinary seamen on the Spanish main and the Mediterranean and many other wonderful places. One of them had ridden up a fire-spouting mountain on a donkey, and they brought home with them lucifer matches that were as big, almost, as Pomeranian logs and were to be struck on the teeth. The boys worshipped them and talked of nothing else. It was a great honor to be seen in the company of such a man. For Pelle it was not to be thought of. And then it came about that the village was awaiting the return of one such lad as this, and he did not come. And one day word came that Bark so-and-so had gone to the bottom with all on board. It was the winter storms, said the boys, spitting like grown men. The brothers and sisters were kept away from school for a week, and when they came back, Pelle eyed them curiously. It must be strange to have a brother lying at the bottom of the sea, quite young. Then you won't want to go to sea, he asked them. Oh, yes, they wanted to go to sea, too. Another time, Fries came back after an unusually long playtime in low spirits. He kept on blowing his nose hard, and now and then dried his eyes behind his spectacles. The boys nudged one another. He cleared his throat loudly, but could not make himself heard, and then beat a few strokes on his desk with the cane. "'Have you heard, children?' he asked, when they had become more or less quiet. "'No, yes, what?' they cried in chorus, and one boy said, that the sun's fallen into the sea and set it on fire. The master quietly took up his hymn-book. "'Shall we sing how blessed are they?' he said, and they knew that something must have happened, and sang the hymn seriously with him. But at the fifth verse Fries stopped. He could not go on any longer. "'Peter Funk is drowned,' he said, in a voice that broke on the last word. A horrified whisper passed through the class, and they looked at one another with uncomprehending eyes. Peter Funk was the most active boy in the village, the best swimmer, and the greatest scamp the school had ever had, and he was drowned. Fries walked up and down, struggling to control himself. The children dropped into softly whispered conversation about Peter Funk, and all their faces had grown old with gravity. Where did it happen? asked a big boy. Fries awoke with a sigh. 
He had been thinking about this boy, who had shirked everything, and had then become the best sailor in the village, about all the thrashings he had given him, and the pleasant hours they had spent together on winter evenings, when the lad was home from a voyage and had looked in to see his old master. There had been much to correct, and things of grave importance that Fries had had to patch up for the lad in all secrecy, so that they should not affect his whole life, and— It was in the North Sea, he said. I think they'd been in England. To Spain with dried fish, said a boy. And from there they went to England with oranges, and were bringing a cargo of coal home. Yes, I think that was it, said Fries. They were in the North Sea, and were surprised by a storm, and Peter had to go aloft. Yes, for the trocadige is such a crazy old hulk. As soon as there's a little wind they have to go aloft and take in sail, said another boy. And he fell down, Fries went on, and struck the rail and fell into the sea. There were the marks of the sea-boats on the rail. They braced, or whatever it's called, and managed to turn. But it took them half an hour to get up to the place, and just as they got there he sank before their eyes. He had been struggling in the icy water for half an hour, with sea-boots and oilskins on, and yet— A long sigh passed through the class. "'He was the best swimmer on the whole shore,' said Henry. He dived backward off the gunwale of a bark that was lying in the roads here taking in water, and came up on the other side of the vessel. He got ten rye rusks from the captain himself for it. He must have suffered terribly, said Fries. It would almost have been better for him if he hadn't been able to swim. That's what my father says, said a little boy. He can't swim, for he says it's better for a sailor not to be able to. It only keeps you in torture. My father can't swim either, exclaimed another. Not mine either, said a third. He could easily learn, but he won't. And they went on in this way, holding up their hands. They could all swim themselves, but it appeared that hardly any of their fathers could. They had a superstitious feeling against it. Father says you oughtn't to tempt Providence if you're wrecked, one boy added. Why, but then you'd not be doing your best, objected a little faltering voice. Fries turned quickly toward the corner, where Pelle sat blushing to the tips of his ears. Look at that little man, said Fries, impressed. And I declare, if he isn't right and all the rest of us wrong, God helps those that can help themselves. Perhaps, said a voice, it was Henry Bodker's. Well, well, I know he didn't help here, but still we ought always to do what we can in all the circumstances of life. Peter did his best, and he was the cleverest boy I ever had. The children smiled at one another, remembering various things. Peter Funk had once gone so far as to wrestle with the master himself, but they had not the heart to bring this up. One of the bigger boys, however, said, half for the purpose of teasing. He never got any farther than the twenty-seventh hymn. "'Didn't he? Didn't he, indeed?' snarled Fries. "'And you think perhaps you're clever, do you? Let's see how far you've got, then.' And he took up the hymn-book with a trembling hand. 
he could not stand anything being said against boys that had left. The name Blue Bag continued to stick to Pelle, and nothing had ever stung him so much. And there was no chance of his getting rid of it before the summer came, and that was a long way off. One day the fisher boys ran out onto the breakwater in playtime. A boat had just come in through the pack ice with a gruesome cargo, five frozen men, one of whom was dead and lay in the fire-engine house, while the four others had been taken into various cottages, where they were being rubbed with ice to draw the frost out of them. The farmer boys were allowed no share in all this excitement, for the fisher boys, who went in and out and saw everything, drove them away if they approached and sold meager information at extortionate prices. The boat had met a Finnish schooner drifting in the sea, covered with ice and with frozen rudder. She was too heavily laden so that the waves went right over her and froze, and the ice had made her sink still deeper. When she was found, her deck was just on a level with the water, ropes of the thickness of a finger had become as thick as an arm with ice and the men who were lashed to the rigging were shapeless masses of ice. They were like knights in armor with closed visor when they were taken down, and their clothes had to be hacked off their bodies. Three boats had gone out now to try and save the vessel. There would be a large sum of money to divide if they were successful. Pelle was determined not to be left out of all this, even if he got his shins kicked in and so he kept near and listened. The boys were talking gravely and looked gloomy. What those men had put up with! And perhaps their hands or feet would mortify and have to be cut off. Each boy behaved as if he were bearing his share of their sufferings, and they talked in a manly way and in gruff voices. "'Be off with you, bull!' they called to Pelle. They were not fond of blue-bags for the moment. The tears came to Pelle's eyes, but he would not give in, and wandered away along the wharf. "'Be off with you!' they shouted again, picking up stones in a menacing way. "'Be off to the other bumpkins, will you?' They came up and hit at him. "'What are you standing there and staring into the water for? You might turn giddy and fall in head first. Be off to the other locals, will you, blue bag? Pelle turned literally giddy, with the strength of the determination that seized upon his little brain. I'm no more a blue bag than you are, he said, while you wouldn't even dare to jump into the water. Just listen to him. He thinks you jump into the water just for fun in the middle of winter and get cramp. Pelle just heard their exultant laughter as he sprang off the breakwater, and the water, thick with ground-up ice, closed above his head. The top of his head appeared again, he made two or three strokes with his arms like a dog, and sank. The boys ran in confusion up and down and shouted, and one of them got hold of a boat-hook. Then Henry Bodker came running up, sprang in head-first without stopping, and disappeared while a piece of ice that he had struck with his forehead made ducks and drakes over the water. Twice his head appeared above the ice-filled water to snatch a breath of air, 
and then he came up with Pelle. They got him hoisted up onto the breakwater, and Henry set to work to give him a good thrashing. Pelle had lost consciousness, but the thrashing had the effect of bringing him too. He suddenly opened his eyes, was on his legs in a trice, and darted away like a sandpiper. "'Run home!' the boys roared after him. "'Run as hard as ever you can, or you'll be ill. Only tell your father you fell in.' And Pelle ran. He needed no persuasion. When he reached Stone Farm, his clothes were frozen quite stiff, and his trousers could stand alone when he got out of them. But he himself was as warm as a toast. He would not lie to his father, but told him just what had happened. Lasse was angry, angrier than the boy had ever seen him before. Lasse knew how to treat a horse to keep it from catching cold and began to rub Pelle's naked body with a wisp of straw, while the boy lay on the bed, tossing about under the rough handling. His father took no notice of his groans, but scolded him. "'You mad little devil! To jump straight into the sea in the middle of winter like a lovesick woman! You ought to have a whipping. That's what you ought to have. A good sound whipping. But I'll let you off this time, if you'll go to sleep.' and try to sweat, so that we can get that nasty salt water out of your body. I wonder if it wouldn't be a good thing to bleed you." Pelle did not want to be bled. He was very comfortable lying there, now that he had been sick. But his thoughts were very serious. "'Supposing I'd been drowned,' he said solemnly. "'If you had, I'd have thrashed you to within an inch of your life,' said Lasse angrily. Pelle laughed. "'Oh, you may laugh, you word-catcher,' snapped Lasse. "'But it's no joke being father to a little near-do-will of a cub like you.' Saying which, he went angrily out into the stable. He kept on listening, however, and coming up to peep in and see whether fever or any other devilry had come of it. But Pelle slept quietly, with his head under the quilt and dreamed that he was no less a person than Henry Bodker. Pelle did not learn to read much that winter, but he learned twenty and odd hymns by heart, only by using his ears, and he got the name Bluebag, as applied to himself, completely banished. He had gained ground and strengthened his position by several bold strokes, and the school began to take account of him as a brave boy. And Henry, who as a rule took no notice of anybody, took him several times under his wing. Now and then he had a bad conscience, especially when his father, in his newly awakened thirst for knowledge, came to him for the solution to some problem or other, and he was at a loss for an answer. "'But it's you who ought to have the learning,' Lasse would then say reproachfully. As the winter drew to an end, and the examination approached, Pelle became nervous. Many uncomfortable reports were current of the severity of the examination among the boys, of putting into lower classes and complete dismissal from the school. Pelle had the misfortune not to be heard independently in a single hymn. He had to give an account of the fall. The theft of the apple was easy to get through, but the curse! 
And God said unto the serpent, Upon thy belly shalt thou go, upon thy belly shalt thou go, upon thy belly shalt thou go. He could get no further. Does it still do that, then? asked the clergyman kindly. Yes, for it has no limbs. And can you explain to me what a limb is? The priest was known to be the best examiner on the island. He could begin in a gutter and end in heaven, people said. A limb is... is a hand. Yes, that is one. But can't you tell me something that distinguishes all limbs from other parts of the body? A limb is, well, a... a part of the body that can move by itself, for instance. Well... The ears, said Pelle, perhaps because his own were burning. Oh? Can you move your ears, then? Yes. By dint of great perseverance... Pelle had acquired that art in the course of the previous summer, so as not to be outdone by Rude. "'Then upon my word I should like to see it!' exclaimed the clergyman. So Pelle worked his ears industriously, backward and forward, and the priest and the school committee and the parents all laughed. Pelle got excellent in religion. "'So it was your ears after all that saved you,' said Lasse, delighted." Didn't I tell you to use your ears well? Highest marks in religion, only for moving your ears. Why, I should think you might become a parson if you liked. And he went on for a long time. But wasn't he the devil of a laddie to be able to answer like that? End of chapter 11